Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A look under the bonnet of the health service. We speak to the former HSE exec who walked away from his role having encountered what he says was extreme resistance to attempts at reform. We also hear from those on the front line and the patients who bear the brunt of the current healthcare crisis. And later, another jump in ECB rates, a hike in the price of a pint, and energy giants see their greatest yearly profits to date. Our panel discuss the stories you may have missed. You can join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Here in studio now to discuss his former head of digital transformation at the HSE, Professor Martin Curley, patient advocate Gary Boyle, and health correspondent with the Irish examiner Neve Griffin. I'm also joined on Skype by consultant surgeon in Letterkenny University Hospital, Dr. Michael Sugru, and GP Dr. Ilona Duffy. You're all very welcome along uh, to the programme tonight. Um, we said from the outset, Martin Curley, that you have joined us. You were somebody who worked in the HSE, a former HSE Director of Digital Transformation, and now returning to a new role outside of the HSE. Can you tell us about your role within the health service, um, which you held while you were there b before you, you left it? Claire, thanks for having me on. Well, actually, let's talk about my... I think my role is broader in the health service, and it's about trying to take mission impossible and make it mission possible. I've only one interest, if I can, you know, paraphrase Superintendent Ted Hastings. I'm interested in one thing and one thing only, and that's saving lives and improving health. I actually think I know how to fix our health service, and there's many people that are with me have had the same thinking. And uh, we have an extraordinary uh, workforce. We have brilliant clinicians, passionate, dedicated, but they're the glue that's holding this system together. So Ireland is an extraordinary outlier globally in healthcare. Uh, so both Gary and I, for example, have experienced really good care. And if you get into system good, good care, but we have a, a terrible health system. So we're number 80 in the world, according to CO World Rankings. Another ranking has it at number 84. So that would put us at the worst health system. So I'm talking about the system in the Northern Hemisphere. We're the top spenders in the EU 15 based on GNI, according to ESRI. And we have the youngest population. So... This, Ireland has so many good things going for it. We have a great education system. We have all the top companies here. We have this most remarkable digital health ecosystem. And I left HSE because Fabulous Solutions developed with leading clinicians like Professor you know, Ken McDonald, like Professor Richard Coslow. We have clinical evidence that they work mm -hmm. and they're not being adopted. They're being blocked. Okay, let's talk about what you were doing. So as Director of Digital Transformation, 
what was your job? What was your role? You went in there, obviously, and there's great ambition sounding in, in that job title in itself as the HSE looks to reform itself. So, you know, you went in with the task and what, what was that task? Well, actually, initially joined as the Chief Information Officer, uh, but I quickly concluded that that actually was too difficult uh, a job, but there was a much bigger prize, which was to transform the entire system using digital technology. And I wrote a book with a colleague from the European Commission, which is about how do you drive structural change in an industry? And we have a lot of evidence that this works. So my job essentially was to work with clinicians and with patients. And we use a methodology called living labs, mm -hmm. where we tested these solutions in clinical settings, in the hospitals, in the home. And three and a half years ago, the HSE maybe had one or two digital health SMEs working with it. Uh, now we have you know, 30, 40, and remarkable, world-leading solutions. Like, if I can give one example, PMD Solutions in Cork, uh, Miles Murray, he developed a motion-tolerant respiration solution that we deployed with Richard Costa the first week COVID was here. It's now in 23 hospitals. We now have it in Donegal. We are keeping very sick patients who are normally hospitalized once a month. We've had no hospitalizations in five months because we can use these okay. technologies. And it does sound like you were doing brilliant work there, working with small and medium enterprises, you say, at the very heart of technical innovation to bring about these big changes that everyone says is needed in the system. But you say at the heart of it, there was a reluctance. There was a reluctance to change. What, what were the blocks? What was holding you back? And what essentially led you to quit your job? Well, I am a serial innovator and uh, I'm also an innovation professor. So I know that resistance is normal, but what I experienced is extreme resistance. But, what we are doing, you know, Machiavelli said three or 400 years ago, there's nothing more difficult to undertake, more perilous to conduct, more uncertain in its success than to bring about a new order of things. And what we're bringing actually to Ireland is a revolution. One of my colleagues, George Crooks in Ireland, he said to me, I'm so envious of you, Martin. You are so far behind. You actually have a green field. And we see there are three major shifts. Envious at our lack of development. It's interesting, exactly isn't it? Exactly, because... So, but I, I just want to get to the crux of it, um, if we may, Martin, about what you're talking about, this resistance to change. So all the ambition, it appears, is there, certainly, like from your side and clinician side. But what's, what's stopping it? Well, there's Copernicus. He was the guy that said, look, the earth revolves around the sun and he got a lot of resistance. And we have the opportunity to create a whole new solution, a whole new system, and there's three key changes. And these are being resisted. The first is from illness to wellness. We're spending 97% of our budget on illness. If we just spend six, seven, 10% on wellness, we'd all be better. Are, we, are you talking though at the heart of it that it's administrators, those without you know, medical knowledge, who, who are, who are, who are blocking. I mean, that's, that's, that's and, what you've said. You know, these you are said people that are world. unaccountable, they're untouchable, and I, I guess Michael Suger and other surgeons uh, will, will, will say that. So leading clinicians, the national clinical leads, people like, you know, Professor Ken McDonald, you know, Matt Barrett, who's a fantastic cardiologist, he, you know, Matt would say, we have a service with Centric Health and Roche where we've kept 150 heart failure patients out of hospital for a year and a half. And Matt says, I will put a thousand of my patients onto that service that's available. Why aren't we doing that? We have a thousand people on respiratory technology at home. For example, Mike O'Malley in Galway, his cystic fibrosis patients are saving 950 euros a year 
they're much safer staying at home and why aren't we adopting these solutions? And, and, and we're not, um, is the point that you're making, Martin. And we'll talk a little bit about that because, Gary, I want to bring you in here because people watching this at home will say, well, look, how is all of this impacting on patients? We, we, we see the overcrowding. We see the long waiting lists. You were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2009, a relatively young man having to deal with a hugely complex medical condition. And obviously, when we talk about waiting lists, you will require a lot of access to supports. Have you got those supports that you need? And do you see what Martin is saying about innovation being there and not being used? It's, that's very frustrating. I see that exactly what Martin means by that. But yeah, I've, I've been living with Parkinson's for about 13 or 14 years now at this stage. And the supports that are available, they're not very even, they're not very, you know, they're not the same all over the country. You have to kind of go to one place for one set of, um, uh, you know, reliefs and then you have to go somewhere else to get something else. Um, but what I found really is I've educated myself on what's it, what I need to do myself to keep myself fit and active and healthy. And that's what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get as many people who can with a diagnosis such as uh, Parkinson's or indeed any neurological condition and trying to get them to be aware that there's a lot they can do, there's a lot they can, we can manage ourselves because relying on, on HSE to, 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 to do everything as it should be done, you can't rely on it. Like, for example, there's a particular course I took for my speech and language therapy. Um, it, was, it was a brilliant course, very intensive, very successful. My voice is pretty strong. I hope mm. you can hear me okay. Um, but that's something that every person diagnosed with Parkinson's should be automatically, you know, enrolled into. That's what they're doing in the UK. So there's lots of things that and we can why, do. I presume you questioned, why isn't that happening here? Well, I, I don't know, but the stats are just pretty awful. We, for the, the number of people we have in the country, we have 42 neurological nurses, specialist nurses. Mm. What the EU says we should have, based on our population, we should have 142. So it's that kind of thing. Total, people don't see their consultant for two or three years. I see my consultant maybe once every 18 months, but I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm working hard at keeping fit. A lot of people aren't in that lucky position and they don't see their consultant for, for two years, three, sometimes three years. And it's not surprising because there aren't enough consultants to go around anyway. And the census as well, like you spoke there about supports in the community. And that, uh, uh, um, Neve, you get the sense that that's really at the heart of what Slauncher Care wants to achieve, mm -hmm. to have those community supports, to have it in the home with digital technology. And yet what we're seeing is still reliance on, on, on the hospital system that's clearly overburdened. Uh, yes, that is unfortunately very fair to say. Uh, Sloan to Care has been there, I suppose, 2017 was when the, the plan was put out. And patients like yourselves were supposed to be at the centre of that. So we, the hospitals are ultimately supposed to be for acute, like emergency, life, life-threatening, neurological surgery, that sort of level of care. And everything else should be in the community. And the, I was listening to the projects you were listing out. Mm. There is a lot of small projects happening with Sloan to Care. There's different ambulance projects, different nutrition projects. Mm. But Roisin Shortall has described all of that as piecemeal. And that's sort of what the problem is. And there's concern that the actual plan isn't rolling out as fast as it should. And do you believe that's because there's confusion at the heart of it all about what the HSE wants to be or needs to be? 
Well, I suppose the, the big issue is that the HSE, as we think of it today, isn't going to exist really under Sloan to Care. And that's a hard thing maybe to give up, to, to give up your power from the centre. So we'll have some power still in Dublin, but the hospital groups will be gone and the community care will be gone, will be re reformed. But that's the idea. Yes. So let's um, talk about, I suppose, people who are working at the front line at the moment. Uh, Dr. Michael Sugru, uh, to bring you in, you're um, a consultant surgeon, you're based in the Northwest in Donegal. Thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. We're hearing um, from Martin Curley there that when he was trying to implement pilot programmes, technical innovation that could, you know, cut down on waiting lists and really bring care, accessible care to people. There was no objection at clinician level to change, but it was administrators or those at other management levels that were holding it all back, placing barriers in the way of progress. Was that, is that true in your experience? Yes, uh, that's that's correct. I, I first met Martin and Digital Transformation in the project that we had obtained funding from the European Union. It was an eight million uh, euro project dealing with emergency surgery. Let me just explain that to you. Emergency surgery is people who have acute gallbladder problems, appendicitis, uh, acute abdominal pain, of which Ireland has 100,000 admissions a year. So the project that we set up was to set up standards, key performance outcomes, and Martin and the Digital Transformation came in with a database to allow us to actually analyze this, to come up with very useful analysis uh, to tell us how well we were doing, where the areas were that needed to be addressed. So this is a very exciting, fundamental requirement for patients. Very similar to what you have in breast cancer and colorectal cancer, where standards are set up in, and in existence. In emergency surgery, we don't have any standards in the country. So this project, which is a very exciting project over three years, identified in Letterkenny Hospital, which is the seventh busiest hospital for emergency surgery. Of the 6,000 patients we were admitted, we could identify how we were doing in certain conditions. So at the cold face, very important practical implications for patients. So for example, Claire, if you had your gallbladder attack today and you were brought into hospital, we would have standards by which you would be managed. So when should you have your ultrasound? When should you have your surgery? What would be the reasonable expectation for outcome? And um, as Gary says, we en enrolled patient-related outcome tools into this. So that's all in a digital framework, but it does require the standards. And this was our report, which uh, was a very exciting report, and it was a you know 350-page report, which we produced over a year ago. We would like to see that implemented with world leaders in emergency surgery contributing to that. So, sorry, just so, to get what you've picked up there is a 350-page report, you know, that you came up with a year ago. What's happened that report? Is it gathering dust? Yes, uh, and it is. It is so wrong for the people of Ireland that this uh, documentation with key performance indicators is sitting there when we could improve. We could improve the outcome. Who's blocking that? Who's stopping this progress? Well, that's a very good question. Um, that's a really good question. I think people need to answer this question uh, from the minister down through the HSC and um, the health department. What I do is I, I'm there. My charter is to provide clinical care for my patients, like my other surgeons, nurses, porters, uh, allied health. We're there with family doctors as well in, in the primary care to provide an overall standard.
These need national standards. We urgently need national standards in emergency surgery. You know, that would surprise a lot of people when you're saying there are no national standards in place. That will surprise an awful lot of people, I think, to hear that tonight. You see, I'm, I also do breast surgery. Like most surgeons, we do uh, cancer surgery. And there are excellent standards in breast cancer surgery, key performance indicators, and a good registry to manage that. For the other 100,000 patients who come in presenting to our hospitals with emergency conditions, such as appendicitis, bowel problems, there aren't those standards. They're not in place. And, but we right. have defined those. And okay. the questions need to be asked, who's, who's, who's actually running uh, the system? All right, OK. Um, uh, that is the question, I suppose, uh, at the core of all that. We did ask the HSE to come on the programme tonight and no one was available um, to, to us to come on the programme, um, just to state that. Um, but I want to bring in the GP view now and Alona Duffy also joins us on the programme tonight. Thanks for being with us, Alona. When we hear um, GPs' issues and frustrations with the system, it seems to centre around paperwork and the workflow and how that is causing blockages um, your end is that the experience that you have and in what way would somebody like you know martin curley's job as looking at digital transformation what sort of transformation do you think if you can say it sort of briefly needs to occur and could occur and happens in other countries where it's working just fine well i suppose general practice is probably the furthest ahead with regards to it of all parts of the hsc and that most gps are computerized we're engaging in not only computer electronic records but e-prescribing, e-certification, e-referrals, and trying to get as much data back from the hospitals on the results of tests and everything via you know, an online portal and stop the letters. Yet every day I have secretaries spending hours opening envelopes, scanning in letters, but just, you know, it, it, you can't then audit any of that information that's coming in from it. I suppose Martin would have been part of pushing through e-prescribing, which means that when you go to your GP, your prescription can be sent directly to the pharmacy of choice. We had been trying to get that up and running for years and it took COVID and it took someone like Martin in there to push to get that. So there are so many other things during COVID as well. We, we many GPs did that home kind of monitoring of patients who had oxygen saturation monitors during COVID. And again, stopping those patients perhaps needing to unnecessarily attend A&E. Yeah, it's interesting on that one. Um you know, that we talked about COVID and we, we, we say it a lot when we're talking about that change that had to come about quickly because we were forced into that situation. So it begs the question um, about the will for that change to happen and um, whether, you know, the will is there ordinarily and whether there, that, there's a cultural, there's a problem at the culture of, of the HSE that, that's, that's causing this issue, that's causing this block, blockage or that desire not to change things. Yeah, um, COVID was a big bang disruptor. There was such a need and we delivered 10 solutions in about 10 weeks. Like we had COVID respiratory solutions that Alona talked about available in 48 hours. We, and we, we got amazing, we were one of the first in the world actually, we were getting 12 hours notice. But the issue actually, the, why we were so successful in COVID, there were two reasons. The one reason there was such a huge, huge need but secondly, the people who actually are the full-time obstructors, they were busy with other stuff. So we could actually do the work while these people uh, were, not, were not blocking. We're now arguably in a bigger emergency than we were in COVID. We knew about the hospitals being full and there is a massive culture problem. I don't want uh, in you, I don't want, I clearly don't want you to name names, Martin, but when you're talking about obstructors and people who are blockers, are you talking about 
you know, senior leaders, are you talking about senior managers? Uh, like who within the system? Yeah, abs absolutely. We put and in wh why? Why do they not want to? I think there are see people that change. value power over patience and progress and, and purpose. You know, we put in a governance mechanism. My small team, we were identified in 2020 as the world leaders in, you know, in public sector innovation. We had a small budget. That budget was was blocked. We were we, we did, for example, an amazing project with Professor Colin Doherty, who is now the head of the Trinity Medical School, and he co-developed a solution mm. for epilepsy patients with IBM and with uh, Salesforce. When I asked him, is this solution better than what you currently have? And I talk a lot about 10x, 10 times better. Is it? He said, no, it's not 10x, it's 100x. But that system has been blocked. We got an explicit instruction, stop development. HSE doesn't do development. And we've had such an appalling record since 2004. It's been our strategy to deliver electronic health records. Right. Okay. Can I just, on our phones, we actually have an electronic health record we can give to everybody in the country for the price of a cup of coffee, and that's being blocked. You see, it, that's incredibly frustrating, I think, for people to um, to hear that, especially when we talk about, you know, the problems that we encounter, not just this time of year, but actually all year round when it comes to overcrowded hospitals and those big waiting lists. Gary, do you think there are simple and efficient things that could make, you know, your health journey an awful lot easier that actually don't come down to maybe recruitment and all those traditional things we hear that are, you know, blocking supports for people? Yeah, well, I do think it has to be acknowledged that the people that I deal with anyway in the HSE, the healthcare professionals that I'm dealing with, they're absolutely top drawer. I mean, they're, they're world-class people, speech and language therapists, occupational therapists, uh, physiotherapists, um, dietitians. They're, they're really, you couldn't get better anywhere else. That's why they get do so well when they emigrate to Australia and Canada, get their snap up in, in, in a minute. But we don't have enough of them for the, for the people who, who, who need them. And that's, that's going to be a problem until we address it. We can address it in part by educating people on how they can help themselves. But we really need more resources, highly trained, highly skilled, just like what we, what we have at the moment. Um, Niamh, um, just to come to you on all of this, because any time we have this discussion, it always seems so hopeless. Um, there are big plans afoot. Mm -hmm. Slaunch Care is part of that. Martin yeah. would have been part of those plans. So, I mean, where, do, you, do you believe that progress can be made and that you have been working, say, on this brief, I think, for, what, 15 years? Um, 15 <laughs> years from now, um, are we likely to see a much-evolved well, healthcare system that we can all be proud of, that we can all be happy with? I mean, as you say, hope, you just have to, to hope that that's what's happening. Like, I think sometimes, you know, this this image of like, if, if a group of people who can't see approach an elephant and you touch a different part of the elephant, you don't know what it is and you can't imagine that it is. And that's maybe what Slant Care is. It's so big. We're trying to move away from hospitals into the community at the same time as dealing with this massive crisis in the hospitals. Like you mentioned, the, the staffing, like there's, Somebody's making mistakes in terms of demographic predictions, and that's causing an awful lot of problems, I think, down through the system, because we don't have enough hospitals, we don't have the that's, elective. That would, seem, that, would seem, that would seem pretty basic, wouldn't it? There is, but I think the bigger, there is real hope, 
So for patients out there and people that have kids, we actually can transform the system. One of the big issues is healthcare is about a decade behind other industries in digitalizing. And recent McKinsey report said actually there was negative productivity in healthcare over a 10 year period. But we have evidence that we can do th things 10 times faster, 10 times better, 10 times cheaper. Nurses can manage 10 times more patients and are alerted only when the patient has a problem. And they've more time for nursing and similarly, Okay, can I just take you up on this? This is a very practical, very practical level. Um, we got this, you know, message or account from, from a junior doctor in a hospital here. Um, for those that say the main roadblock to introducing a national patient care record in Ireland is money, I ask how can that be? It took me an hour earlier to perform a job that would have taken five minutes with a competent digital system. Mm. That's wasted man hours, that's money. Um, I've worked in a HSE hospital now after a year in the NHS, he says, and the digital infrastructure is staggering. It's archaic, impractical, downright unacceptable. There is no excuse. And he says he's currently working in a unit, uh, an acute inpatient unit that has no staff Wi-Fi, no coverage. There's only one computer in the whole building that allows access to patients' blood results and a program which looks and operates like a Windows 95 program. No, it's absolutely, you know, staggering and there is no excuse for it. What I say, the reason I stepped out, I think we can, you know, Ronald Reagan said, you know, government is not the solution, it's the problem. And the HSE actually is not the solution, it's the problem. It's we could give everybody a personal electronic health record on the phone. We have a program, we've been working with John Carroll and Care Plus Pharmacies and 10 other companies where every citizen can go to the pharmacy they can get a health check, they can get a personal electronic health record, they can get a device like a Fitbit, and they can manage their health care because chronic disease, we can identify, if you can identify chronic disease now, uh, you can solve major or avoid major problems right. down, you know, in 10 years' time. And we, we can think, we can do something completely different. It could be completely breathtaking. We just have to decide to do it. We can be the world leaders. We've all the big but tech companies. But you're not sticking around to see that true, Martin. Oh, I am. I'm actually, I'm not quitting. I'm not, well, I'm coming at a different angle. So we're going to take this, you know, differently. And I did a post okay. on climbing Everest. We're going to go round Everest rather than all right. scale Okay, it. we've all the motivational talk tonight. But just to come back to, I think, you know, the, the, the tax of this and where people are at on the front line here. Alona, if there's something, you know, that, that could change and... The, is there hope? You, you say you've changed, you know, and, and GPs are adapting. Um, do you believe there is the will there and that we will see an improvement in the system? Unfortunately, I, I don't think we will. We're seeing the HSE and the government announce that they're going to introduce 400,000 extra GP visit cards by April. And this is making decision to add this on to an already overloaded GP system that where people we know that up to 10% of the population have no GP and those who have it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...constantly that they're having increasing difficulty accessing us. So the thing that we prided ourselves on same-day access is really being compromised at this time. So we know that 25% of our GP population are over the age of 60, 15% over 65. And we're still seeing this lack of investment into primary care, into general practice. And the reality is we are the bedrock of the health system. Yes, absolutely, the hospitals and everything are totally needed. But if we don't have a strong primary care system, people will not have that preventative health care that Martin talks about. Is that down to money and investment um, alone on that front? Just just because we, we talked about the spend, the fact that we're 80th in the world when it comes to our ranking on health care, and yet we have a very high spend um, per citizen, or if we're talking about on a European comparison. We have a really high spend on health care in this country. Well, we know that um, basically about 4.5% of the total health budget goes to general practice. Not, not, that's not just to the GPs, but that's to our nurses and to all the other staff we have working with us. 4.5%. I think that says it all. All right. OK, well, there we'll have to leave um, that conversation for now. But my thanks um, to Martin Curley, who joined us in studio, to Gary Boyle, uh, to Dr Michael Sugru, and to Alona Duffy. Um, Neve Griffin is staying on with me. Coming up after the break, we're going to take a look at the other big stories of the day and why the price of a pint is on the way up this week. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm joined now by writer and broadcaster Barbara Scully, journalist Ina Doherty. Neve Griffin is still with me as we take a look now at some of the other stories of the day, starting with the announcement of another interest rate hike by the European Central Bank. This will hit people in their pockets, and we do know that because for the first time, we've seen a bank actually apply those rates to variable rate customers and fixed rate customers, that's AIB. Up until now, they've held back. Uh, do you feel this is really the start of it for, for homeowners and people who are... Paying mortgages. Anybody paying a mortgage, really, yeah, um, for sure. And now, it's directly I, applied to trackers, of course. We've known that since, yes. since the get-go, since we saw all this. But certainly banks have held back. They've been restrained until now, Barbara. Yeah, that's right. And obviously now, I think it's AIB, is that what you said, who've announced that they mm. are actually going to pass on um, a hike to their variable rate customers. And as far as I know, there's another hike coming probably in March. Yeah. So, you know, we're not... This isn't the end of this in the immediate in the immediate term. And obviously for anybody paying mortgages on a variable rate, it is going to make, you know, a difference um, depending on the amount of your mortgage. But I also, again, think it's another, the people I feel really sorry for, 
uh, are again young people who are trying desperately mm -hmm. to get a deposit together mm. and get a loan together to, to get themselves onto the house and get themselves a house. I think one of the saddest things about Ireland at the moment is that we have a generation, my youngest daughters are both in their 20s, and they both say regularly, sure, we'll never be able to afford a home for our own. And they've accepted that as just being yeah. the reality. And, and I think funny that's enough, we had that, we had a, a Red Sea poll um, that we conducted with people and, and, and among a younger cohort of people, a younger group, 90% were saying they never believe they'll be able to own their own home. It, it doesn't even seem to come up as in a conversation. This, like, they, Obviously, there's a sense that people, they just can't visualise it. It just seems so out of reach yeah. for so many young people in this country right now. It is. It's very sad, like Barbara said, and that was always in Ireland. The assumption was that the next generation would do better yes. than the generation before. Whereas now we're seeing people moving back to live with their parents, people mm. relying, and people joke about the bank of mum and dad, but not everybody has a bank of mum and dad no. either because, well, they just don't. And the other problem is the that there's, to improve. there's a knock-on effect talking about the bank of mum and dad is that mum and dad then are stuck um, in, they can't downsize because their children won't move out. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, you're, okay. you know, whereas old, older people like me should be downsizing kind of-ish in the next few years, which would release some equity, which might allow then a little bit of bank and mom and dad, mm -hmm. but that's not happening either. So yeah. it's a whole it's crazy... Stuck. Well, this isn't going to end um, anytime soon, even though we are seeing the kind of cost of living uh, rise is sort of, you know, slowing up in certain instances. Um, it, it's certainly Some of not, the metrics. It's not, it's not causing the ECB to but pull the, back. But the thing is, um, any regular readers of my columns will know that I'm not an economic genius. Um, <laughs> I have an accountant who but goes go home... on. I have an accountant who goes <laughs> home and cries himself to sleep every night after I have a meeting with him, right? So I'm not great at money. But here's the thing, and um, a lot of people at home who've been watching this, their eyes are kind of glaze over when it comes to interest rates and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But, and I, I would normally be the same, except for the fact that my mortgage has now gone up 700 quid a month. That's, that's the reality that we're facing. So in a situation where we're talking so about... So since it, when? We got a letter last Hike. week. We got a letter last week. And Before this... And before this came out, and it's going to go up even more next month because they're going to raise it again in March. So in many ways, while I've always written about the, the desperate unfairness mm. of young people not being able to get themselves in the housing ladder, at the moment, I'm looking at my mortgage bills yeah. and I'm going, do you know what? Be careful what you wish for. You know, maybe it is better to actually just stay renting. Yeah, and who because owns... Who owns is... uh, we talk about homeowners, who owns the home? Uh, the banker owns the home in, in, mm. in, in most instances until you reach exactly. the point that you've paid uh, that mortgage off. Uh, I do want to briefly touch on another thing that came up this week and it was announced by uh, Diageo last month, but it's happened now, up by 12 cents, the price of a pint. Um, your view on that, Ian? This is an area that you, you might say you are that. familiar with. Well, well, no, people say that the Irish have a drinking problem. Well, we really do now because we're probably trying to afford it. Um, this is going to sound the death knell for an awful lot of Irish pubs. And I know Country publicans pubs. who are basically saying that they're just not going to stock Diageo products, i.e. Guinness. Um, and can you imagine an Irish pub that doesn't have Guinness? Are they cutting off their nose despite their face now? Do you think they'll actually follow through on that, that you'll go into a pub and you won't be able to get a 
And they're, to but they're not doing it. Diageo aren't doing it in other countries. This yeah. is one of the things that seems to be particularly unfair. And but what I do find is that, as I said, I mean, I have friends who are actually bar workers and who own pubs. And ever since the smoking ban, they feel that everything has been restricted on them. Lockdown pretty much killed them. If it didn't kill them, it put them on life support. And the whole social landscape has changed. Has changed. Yeah. And now this is they're talking about basically mm. eight quid for a pint of Guinness. And that's not in Temple Bar. That'll be in regular pubs. And people just aren't going to do that. Yeah, they'll do much more of that, which people got very used to during the pandemic, I think, um, drinking drinking at home. People but are need... drinking less to younger people. Like, that's also, I think, of making a the cultural change nervous. there as well. Yeah, that yeah. there is a cultural Look, not change. To stick with it. services, um, and we go for pubs to other businesses like um, hairdressing. Mm -hmm. um, on this one, I hate to be gendered about it, actually. Why, you know, I'm good to the women on this. But, but look, does, yeah. uh, you know, they are pushing for this 9% VAT rate to stay to at stay. that and not go up again. They, the hairdressers are vocally saying, we will be out of business. Mm -hmm. We took a hit during the lockdown. We were closed for so long. Many people found they could get it, you know, done at home. And um, they're, they're really struggling now and they're really lobbying government on this one. I wonder how, how that will go for them. Yeah, well, they're they're right to argue because, as you say, they've been at the edge of the all of the lockdowns, and suddenly people who maybe went for haircuts if you weren't going into the office, mm. you also didn't need to get your hair done as often. And their argument is if we don't have enough customers spending the big money, you know, the, the highlights and everything to get technical about it, um, that they won't be able to keep the staff. And then suddenly, is it viable to have a business if you're only open Friday and Saturday? If it's it not cost Friday. me 15 quid at my local barber to get me I know. I actually, there's a whole <laughs> discussion the, to be had on that. The advantage of being a boy. But the it, other thing I think was Barbara. interesting about this story, and it, it kind of uh, talks to what Ian was talking about, the pubs, is that, you know, the point was made, which I thought was very interesting by the Irish hairdressing federation that hairdressers are also social hubs mm. you know they're more than just a place mm -hmm. to go and get your hair done um, and that's very true in particular of, of in rural areas and it's particularly true i think for older women um, and i mean anybody any woman who's been in and out of hairdressers regularly you know i gave up <laughs> clearly after lockdown but before that i was there very regularly um, you can see how much older women uh, value, they might treat themselves chat. once a week or once a fortnight to getting their hair blow dried and it's a social interaction and it's a bit of a chat with the hairdressers and it's really important. It's so another hope... diminution of Irish social life. Yes. That's, it's, it's another that. thing of the things that, I know I was joking about me paying 15 quid, but I mean, I know women who love, and they've been going to the same hairdresser for oh. 20 years and there's like and personal maybe relationships. Too. Maybe guys too, Ian. Um, but certainly, yeah, it is It is something that we'll have to see where all that lobbying goes because they are pushing hard in this week and, and stating their case very uh, strongly on this one. Um, let's talk about the, 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 the refugee situation. It certainly hit the headlines um, this week, um, again, for all the wrong reasons. We can hear the Taoiseach now uh, talking about the anti-refugee protests when he held a press briefing with the European Parliament President uh, Roberta Metsola today. Let's have a little look at what Leo Varadkar had to say um, about anti-refugee sentiment. I'm very concerned about the uh, rise of the far right and indeed the rise of racism in Ireland. Um, refugees are welcome here. The scenes that we've seen in recent days and recent weeks really aren't acceptable and it's not the Irish way. Um, is he right, Neve, to be concerned about the rise of the far right and the rise of racism in Ireland? 
I think it's very disturbing to see people um, not being welcoming and not just not being welcoming, but being violent and being threatening against women, children and men. There's this idea that we shouldn't take male refugees. People are coming here for a reason and then they are assessed and it's decided by, we have a system that decides, it's a slow system and it's not perfect, but we have a system that decides um, whether people are, uh, you know, yeah. are going to come here, not protesting on the street, shouting outside buildings, being aggressive. That's, that shouldn't be part of, a, you know, a functioning society. And yet we keep hearing this argument and this balance that needs to be struck between people who would have legitimate concerns about, say, the issue of, and I think we got, there, there was an FOI and information today about the number of people, say, destroying their passports mm. before entering the country while, while they're on a flight or before arriving in, and what sort of policy we have in place around that. Um, do you think that's very tricky for government to do, to strike that balance between saying, yeah, we need to have a discussion around that. We need to be able to provide answers to people around that, while at the same time, you know, combating this anti-refugee far-right sentiment that, that's coming in and with, with all the, 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 the misinformation that, that comes with that. Yeah, I mean, I think we need a robust system of checking people's motivations. And, you know, I mean, I know there's been stories of people arriving in Dublin airport with no travel documents mm. because they've destroyed them on the way because they don't want the government to be able to check out exactly where they've come from and what their situation is. But parking that for a moment, I think the fact is that when you think, we've had the war in Ukraine now for a year, and when it started, and when refugees started arriving here, there was huge goodwill in the public for these mm. people arriving. There was huge numbers of people offering beds in their own homes and offering to help. What has happened now is that the government have made loads of mistakes, particularly in going into local communities, identifying buildings where they're going to move refugees in without any communication and without any um, consultation with the local community. That kind of vacuum of information where a community feels they don't know what's going on and their views aren't being taken into consideration mm. leads to anger. And then you get the far right yeah. activists moving and in. Yet, and yet the government defence on that is we are scrambling. We are scrambling to accommodate um, so many people into this country right now that there isn't time for consultation in all instances, Ian. But do you think, because there is call for this cross-party task force, just briefly on this, that 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 this, this actually needs to be in place now, or we need an effort for integration. We need something like that well, it's, right it's, now. Well, it's, it's, it's simply not good enough for them to say that they don't have time for consultation. Mm -hmm. It's simply not good enough. The thing is, there are various different issues at play here. It's people in working, predominantly working-class areas who feel like they're being kept like okay. mushrooms, just covered in the dark. Mm -hmm. And these things are being foisted upon them. Um, we're a very welcoming people. I mean, there's a bunch of Ukrainian kids in my neighbourhood and now right. they're speaking with Dublin accents, right? Um, and it's great. But it's also, we need to be very, very careful about smearing everybody who raises an objection as being part and of that, the far right. That's, and that's about, and that's about striking, striking that balance. And um, I think there'll be more discussion, obviously, on that. Um, we're going to take a break now, but we will be talking more after this break, including uh, the controversy about where Katie Taylor's next fight should be held. Do stay with us.
Welcome back. My panel are still here with me. And just briefly um, to turn to profits that have come in from energy companies and uh, it, it's it's eye-watering, really, the profits that they've made at a time of an energy crisis globally. Shell have made $40 billion record profits in 2022. And tonight we got from ExxonMobil, um, they're posting record profits of $56 billion. Um, dollars. It will again add to the idea, I think, Neve, that there are massive profits to be made by big companies in wartime situations. Uh, there seems to be, doesn't there? Like the Shell are saying they they expect to incur 2.4 billion in accounting costs. I mean, what sort of profit are you making if they're your they're your your costs? And then at the same time, we're the ones paying increasing costs, and we see their costs going down, but we're saying, oh, but your gas still, your diesel and your petrol is still high because it takes a while for it to come through the system. Yeah, and, and it people, just feels we're left. Yeah, and it, it feels that people are saying, are we being taken for complete mugs here now? Yeah. We're all paying at the pumps. We're all paying in our bills. And yet there are companies posting massive profits. And, and we, mm -hmm. but we're getting it closer to home as well, aren't we, Barbara? We had um, ESB, we're apparently due 50 euro per household mm. after being overcharged for more than a decade because we subsidised big companies and they actually overcharged regular yep. customers in doing that. That's unbelievable. That was the thing. I mean, Shell didn't surprise me because we knew that they were fleecing people and making huge profits. But the fact, I was shocked when I heard that the ESB had been fleecing us here in Ireland for 12 years in order to subsidise the um, energy or the electricity bills of data centres and big pharma. Like, I'm just, you know, that's the kind of stuff that melts your brain and goes, what? What? How can that mm -hmm. be right? And we're the, we're the people, as you said, and we, who are looking out the window to see if it's windy enough to put on the bloody washing machine. Yeah, but, it's, but but it's, it's okay. It frustrates people, back. I think, with it's that. Okay. It, it, it's, ah. about, uh, it's about trust as well in your provider, isn't it? Right. I'm a big believer in the free market. I'm a big believer in capitalism. I'm a big believer in companies having the right to make as much profit as they want for their shareholders, for themselves. The Shell story turns me into a rapid communist. It's just wow. profoundly, profoundly wrong. And I've never Gee, you agreed... you all that about oil companies making massive profits I know, but in, no, in, in, in particularly given the current climate. Yeah. And, the, and it's the fact that we're paying for it. <clears throat> and I've never agreed with Robin Hood taxes. I've never agreed with windfall taxes. On this one, I would genuinely make an exception. Um, I, I want to talk about the Katie Taylor fight. Um, it's gained a lot of headlines today. And do you believe that it's a big missed opportunity here? An 80,000-seater stadium that won't host or can't... It's not affordable to host an historic sporting event there. And we've heard from Katie Taylor's promoters because of the cost the cost of doing it, some 400,000 euro, um, we are hearing, and that doesn't include the security costs and the additional guardie that would be required well, the, the, to man the event. There seems to be plenty of blame to go around on both sides, because today they've been very busy hurling accusations at each other. Um, I think it's a terrible shame. She's a national icon. Croke Park is our national stadium. Mm -hmm. Whether you know, uh, and I don't mean the national stadium down in South Circular Road. <laughs> I mean it is our national stadium. It would be the fitting venue, but the elephant in the room that nobody seems to want to talk about is this. All goes back to the Regency shooting. It's so incredibly expensive to put on a boxing bout in this country now because of security mm. and because of insurance. But did, um, like I mean, I'm, I'm talking about GA matches, you know, 
rugby matches other things, they all require security. They all require stewards and they all require guard the outside controlling crowds. Yeah, but the, the the thing is, the the cost for this one just right. seemed to be absolutely astronomical. And I, I, I yeah, it's interesting it's, that because GAA have said yes, you know, Wembley Stadium is 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 three hundred thousand euro. Yeah. We're four hundred thousand euro. You know, we're in the ballpark. That's that's what it costs. Neve, do <laughs> you think ballpark. that? I mean, uh, that a Katie Taylor fight would would get would she get that sort of crowd. Yes, she would have sold it out. You believe she absolutely so, would Neve. sell it out because Katie Taylor is not just a boxer. She represents something bigger. People who wouldn't have a clue, to be honest, what she's doing in the ring would actually come to see her, and she would. You would get families. You would get people coming mm -hmm. just because it's an event. She's an, she was the first Olympic gold medal for Ireland in women's boxing. She's you know it oh, would draw other people in. Would've. Yeah. Well, let's see. Maybe maybe. Um strings can be pulled and something can happen around I that. Barbara, so. we we've up. so little time, but we have to talk about another major female icon, St. Bridget. Yeah, yeah. We're all enjoying a nice um, a new bank day holiday. off on Monday. Yeah, which is great. And I have to say, I think the whole concept of having Bridget, the combination of the pagan goddess and the St. Bridget and the woman who set up the monasteries in Kildare, I think it's perfect for this time in Ireland. And as great. a woman, I'm delighted we have a matron saint. And so are all of us. Um, there we'll have to leave it um, for now. My thanks to the panel tonight, to Barbara, uh, to Ian and to Neve. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok, tonight VMTV. But from everyone here, good night and do take care.